When we first started to meet again after the pandemic, um, one of the changes that we made to our regular worship was that we moved to a communion once a month, from once a month to every week. Um, and you've been very gracious with that change. And, and while I explained it to some extent at the time, uh, I know I did a video that one or two of you probably watched, um, and then we also talked about it in Sunday school. But I wanted to take a Sunday morning to explain my conviction about weekly communion from a sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we are getting into. Um, we're going to do that in a couple of weeks, and actually we'll probably, spend, we'll probably spend more than one week looking at this next passage regarding the Lord's Supper. We're going to wait because I knew that several families would be away today, this week, and next week Lee is actually going to be preaching from Psalm 81, and I wanted to keep that passage of 1 Corinthians 11 together as much as possible. Additionally, um, I'm planning, I think, that when we finish 1 Corinthians, we're probably going to be moving into an Old Testament book. And so this morning, I wanted to preach from a passage that is both very encouraging to us and also one that gives some foundation for all that comes after it, especially with regard to the children of Israel. So open your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to the book of Numbers, chapter 6. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers, chapter 6. Before I read today's passage, I want to give you just a little bit of background. My guess is that probably not too many in here have spent too much time in the book of Numbers, but many of the events that are recorded in Numbers are very familiar to people who have been around church for a while. There's a lot of the Sunday school lessons of my childhood come out of the book of Numbers. One of the reasons this book, I think, seems so daunting to us is that it opens and is repeated throughout the book some pretty detailed um, numbers, <laughs> a census of the people of Israel. And often we don't know what to do with large lists of names and numbers in Scripture. In fact, I think actually numbers is an unfortunate name for the book. Um, the title comes from the Septuagint, which is the pre-New Testament era Greek translation of the Old Testament, but the Hebrew name is simply translated in the wilderness. In reality, this book recounts the stories of two different generations of Israelites, one that is faithful and one that is faithless. So here's the setting. After having been led by Moses away from their slavery in Egypt, Numbers opens with the people of Israel still encamped at Mount Sinai. So they fled Egypt through the Red Sea, and in Exodus chapter 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai where the Lord meets with them, or he meets with Moses as their mediator specifically. And he covenants with them, saying this, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the people responded with, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
So he gives them the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. Then he gives them the rest of the law through the, through the final chapters of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. And it's not until Numbers chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, that we see them set out from Mount Sinai and head toward the land that was promised to their forefathers. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 16, they arrive at the southern border of the promised land. And it is from here that they send in the spies, including Caleb and Joshua. But in chapters 13 and 14, their rebellious hearts are revealed as the reports of the spies return and they cry out against God with weeping. Of course, they've already, we've already seen um, their hearts turn to idolatry as they worship that golden calf while they were still back at Sinai. But it's at this point that they are condemned, in chapters 13 and 14, they're condemned to spend 40 years wandering through the wilderness until finally arriving at the plains of Moab in Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. This was just east of the promised land. And they will stay there for the rest of the book of Numbers, just to the east. And it was there, looking at the, looking at the promised land on the horizon, that they would receive the book of Deuteronomy and then wait for the final command to enter the promised land, which happens in Joshua chapter 3. Well, as part of the Pentateuch, those first five books, Numbers focuses on the, on the promises made to, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob back in the book of Genesis. Specifically here, these promises focus on the Lord calling a particular people to himself and promising to give them land where they will walk in fellowship with him. And what we need to remember as we look at today's passage is that this promise has been God's plan from the very beginning. Genesis begins with the Lord creating man, male and female, and commanding them to fill the earth as they, as they walk in fellowship with the Lord and, and reflect his image to the world. That means in reflecting, being made in the image of God, that means that his people are to, are to reflect what we call his, his communicable attributes. That is, those attributes of God that he shares with us, at least to some degree. And so for us as Christians, think of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, for example, which says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or the end of Galatians chapter 5, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is essentially the same purpose for the children of Israel as the book of Numbers opens. They are to walk in close fellowship with their king as they live out the law. Do you remember what we said a couple of weeks ago? Um, the law is summarized, as summarized by their king, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 40, it says this, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. And so consider now, with all that I have said, all of that background and sort of big overview of the people of Israel up until this point, um, consider the children of Israel as they found themselves in Numbers chapter 6, where we read this command and this blessing of the Lord. Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 22, says this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this this blessing and promise as your people, that we would remember these things, that we would trust in this, that we would be reminded of who you are and what you have done in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, because I, I know most of you, I'm guessing that most of us in here, maybe not all, but most of us in here probably have at least a, a little bit of an understanding of the history of the people of Israel. At least we understand that the spiritual life of the nation was filled with ups and downs, and actually more downs than ups, right? So put yourself in their sandals for just a moment. Before this blessing is given, the children of Israel are preparing for this dangerous trek across the desert of the Sinai Peninsula. Many of them will die. Um, as a people, they will face thirst and starvation. There will be enemies who will attack them, and they don't really have an army. Just fathers and brothers and grandfathers, some of whom will fight and, and some will die. Like the Corinthians, they will develop factions and divisions among themselves. And Before they begin on this journey, God goes before them with this blessing. A blessing of comfort and peace and promise. And I want to point out right here that in their wilderness wanderings, this blessing was the very thing that they didn't remember and believe. Listen to their complaint later in, in chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Numbers 20 says this, Why, this is the people crying out, Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Why have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. The complaining children of Israel aren't really that different from us, are they? But I want you to look just for a moment at the blessing itself there in verses 24, 5, and 6. Just let your eyes look over those words. We might miss this in English, although I think we can get a sense of it. 
especially depending on how those particular verses are actually laid out on your pages in front of you. Um, But in Hebrew, that the people would have actually read, each section of the blessing expands on the last. So verse 24 in Hebrew has three words. 25 has five words, and verse 26 has seven words. This blessing expands and enlarges as God is giving it. And the poetry of this would not be lost on the Hebrew people either. The, the, what is called the Tetragrammaton, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, God's personal name is used three times, stressing the giver and the source of the blessing. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. And then beyond the blessing itself, this contains 12 Hebrew words. Remember, consider the poetry of this. 12 words for the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a promise for all of the people. A promise for God's people. Do you see that this is not simply, it's not simply a priest offering up a prayer asking for those things. It's a blessing from God. So, so rather than a prayer um, for the Lord to meet the needs of the people as they journey to the promised land, rather than a prayer for traveling mercies, this benediction explains what God is giving them. This is His initiative. God speaks, God acts, God promises, and God fulfills. And so this blessing or benediction, in this we can see an appointment, a prescription, and a promise. And so we begin with an appointment. Look again at verses 22 and 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel and you shall say to them. The first thing that we ought to notice And Steve got at this for quite a while during Sunday school. The first thing that we really ought to notice is the the verbal nature of the blessing. Spoke, speak, saying, say. The Lord spoke to Moses as the mediator between God and his people. And he commanded him to speak to Aaron and his sons, that that is his, his priestly descendants. And he commanded them to speak this blessing to the people. Implied in that, is that the one who is spoken to is hearing. He's hearing these things. I'm sure we understand it, especially if you're a parent, maybe a wife. Um, There's a difference between listening and hearing, right? Jesus, in explaining to his disciples why he spoke to the people in parables, He said this in Matthew chapter 13. He said, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And hear what you hear and did not hear it. What is the key to that? What did the Apostle Paul say about hearing? He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Those who are 
not blessed by the Lord don't hear. Consider Isaiah's vision of God's throne in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah says this, and I, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Those who are not blessed by the Lord do not hear. We don't hear this blessing. Finally, consider the opening of the book of Hebrews. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so at the end of the service, when one of the elders gets up and reads a benediction, pray that you would hear. Pray that you would hear when Lyman or Chad or Steve gets up and reads the benediction at the very end of the service. Pray that you would hear because they are the very words of Christ as he pronounces a blessing on his people. But back to today's text here. Among all of their responsibilities in ancient Israel, the priests were appointed by God to, to solemnly bless the children of Israel in the name of the Lord. This was part of their work, part of their responsibility. This is a great honor for them to do this since the, the purpose of this blessing was to give great comfort for the people, to give them hope. And yet as priests... They were simply sort of intercessors between the people and God. They could, they could therefore only bless them as the Lord directed. They were to offer sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of the people and to bless the people on behalf of, of the Lord. Still, this blessing carries the promise of the Lord. But that was then, and this is now. How does this apply to us? Well, for one thing, we have, a, we have a better priest. Listen, as the preacher of Hebrews explains, beginning in Hebrews 7.22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Christ's work was to bring blessing to his people. In fact, Luke records Jesus' final, his final earthly act before his ascension in the closing verses of his gospel. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53 says this, And he, Jesus, led them as far out as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This applies to us in that the Lord has, has given to his church pastors, under shepherds of Christ, And pastors are called, we are called to remind those under our care, to remind Christ's sheep that we live under the blessing of Christ. This has been a pattern from the the earliest days of the church. Even the the, the habit of dismissing the assembly, the, the solemn assembly, the church service, dismissing with a blessing. That's why the early, or really nearly all of the New Testament epistles end with such a blessing. Think of Jude, that short one chapter letter. It ends like this Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I've become more and more convinced that this ought to be how we dismiss every Sunday with a reminder that no matter what kind of wilderness you're going to be wandering through during the week, as Christians, we live under the blessing of Christ. But not only was this an appointment for the priests, this blessing is also a prescription for them, a prescription. Verses 24, uh, 5 and 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. For the Hebrew people, the the priests were given the very words of this blessing. Say this to the people. It's not a template. It's not a guide. They were given the very words to say. For us, under the new covenant, in Christ, we have further explained blessings. So think of Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21, right at the end of the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I would not call this, it's sometimes called the Aaronic blessing or the priestly blessing. I wouldn't call it vague. I think it's specific. 
But now that we have Christ, now that we have a new and better priest, now that we have a new and better covenant, even the promise of a new and better promised land, we should see this blessing as so much richer and so much fuller because of Christ. But as we consider this blessing, here are five things to reflect on. Five things to think about, to consider, to hide in your heart. First is this. It should be very clear that God is the only source of the only blessing worth having. God is the only source of the only blessing worth having. Three times it is stressed, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. And even later in verse 27, he says, my name and I will bless them. Five times in this passage, God makes it clear that he and he alone is the only one capable of blessing his people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God and God alone is the only one capable of blessing us? The children of Israel did not. They grumbled and complained all through the remainder of this book, even after they heard this blessing. Even after they heard this blessing regularly, they grumbled and complained. Really, in one way or another, they grumble and complain, not just through the rest of the book of Numbers, but all throughout their history. So we must not become like the Israelites, where we grumble and complain, because God is blessing us. Instead, let us understand from here on out that God is the only one who gives the only blessing worth having. How different would our lives be if we stopped living for the approval of men and instead trusted, lived trusting that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change? And we also need to remember that no one can take the Lord's blessing off his people, though many will try. The world will fight against us because of this blessing. We will be tempted to forget this blessing. Even in, even in numbers, we see God's enemies try to undermine God's promises, but nothing can stop the blessing that comes from the Lord. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Second, let us also consider that this blessing is both corporate and personal. It concerns all of the covenant community of faith and the individuals in it. And so notice in verse 23 it says, Say to the people of Israel. And then throughout the blessing it says, You. His blessing was, was not only for the entire covenant community, it's also for you. He's concerned with his people. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But we too often read the promises of God, and I don't know, maybe this is a uniquely modern, uniquely American, I don't think so. But we too often read the promises of God and consider only the personal aspect. What, what does this mean for me? When we only read the promises of God in that way, we're letting our selfishness take over. And so worship and, and church life becomes all about me. It becomes all about my preferences. And, and church becomes just another service that we consume. But the promises and blessings of God are also necessarily corporate. Think of that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 11. At the end of that chapter, we are reminded of this. The preacher of Hebrews, after listing all of those faithful people who have gone before, he says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. They did not experience the realization of the fulfillment of God's promises in this life, and none of us will either until that day when we experience it together in the eternal kingdom. Third, consider also that God blesses and keeps. God blesses and keeps. Sometimes blessing, using that word, can sound kind of vague, but we know that the promise of the blessing of God is connected with salvation and eternal life in Christ. So when we read the word blessing, we often think of happy or a hashtag. It's not about that. It is about being secure in Christ. It is about salvation and redemption. For the descendants of Abraham... They were given the promise of, uh, of land and seed and blessing, of children and property, a safe land to dwell in where they will live under God's special favor as his special people. And for us as new covenant Christians, this is all fulfilled in Christ. Uh, again, listen to the preacher of Hebrews, this time from chapter 4. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Christ, we are blessed and kept. And we can go to him with confidence, drawing near to his throne of grace. Fourth, consider that the Lord delights in his people and forgives them. The Lord delights in his people and forgives them. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Just as when God revealed his glory to Moses on the mountain, and as a result, Moses' face reflected the glory of God to the people. Exodus 34 tells us that when God's word was being proclaimed, Moses' face would shine on the people because he had been with God. They would take the veil off. He would read the word. The people would see a reflection of God's Glory, literally, and then they'd have to put the veil back on because they were afraid. This idea of God's own face shining on them is a picture of the Lord delighting in his people and showing them his grace. Remember how God describes himself in Exodus 34, just a little bit earlier than when Moses is reading God's word. He says this, God says this about himself. He says, the Lord The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's people have sinned and he has forgiven them. Instead of showing them his fierce anger, instead of showing them his burning fury, he shows them his grace and his mercy. And this is a promise for us as well. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then finally, consider that the Lord sees and he knows. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord watches over his people. He hears our prayers. Remember, these these very people, these very people back in Exodus chapter 2, when they were still in captivity, in fact, If you remember the story between Genesis and Exodus, 
the people of Israel grow to a large number and the Egyptians are intimidated by them and so they make them slaves. And they cry out to God. And in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and to 25, it says this, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The old hymn says, his eye is on the sparrow. The scripture in Psalm 32, verse 8 says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This blessing is an appointment, it's a prescription, and it's also a promise. Look at verse 27. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Simply put, this is a mark of ownership. To have God's name on us. He has purchased us as his own people. Consider Mark 10, verse 45. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Apostle Paul, in instructing the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, tells them to pay careful attention to the flock of Christ who was purchased by his own blood. We are his. We have his name. The way that God is going to mark his people is with a blessing. Not with a branding like cattle, but with a blessing. That's going to be his mark of ownership on us. How do you know that these are my people, God could say? I've put my name and my blessing on them. That's how you're going to know that that they are my people. Because the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name on the people of Israel and I will bless them. Pray with me. Father, just remind us of this blessing today. That in Christ you have blessed your people. You have called us your own and given us um, all that we need. You have sealed us with your promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it, until until we are with you in glory. You are with us. So Father, we... We need to remember this blessing. We need to read and think of these things, not just this one in Numbers, but even in the New Testament, Lord. The blessings that you have given us. Remind us that we are your people and that you are our God. And so as we come to your table this morning, Lord, we don't come based on our own righteousness, but but on your mercy, on your grace, because you have blessed us and kept us, because you have made your face to shine upon us and been gracious to us, because you have lifted up your countenance upon us and in Christ given us peace. 
And so we gather here today and come to your table, Lord, to proclaim that Christ has died for our sins, that he has redeemed for himself a people for his own possession. Father, we come to you this morning in the table as you have come to us in your word. We come to you to worship, Lord, to continue our worship. We pray that you would continue to transform our hearts and our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.